0: If you have a Bible, I hope you do. I'm sure that you do. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We are going to cover uh, the rest of chapter 10 and chapter 11. We're not going to do a verse-by-verse read through uh, through all of the, this, this scripture. Uh, I want to highlight a couple of specific verses, um, and I want to set the stage for us this evening about what we're going to talk about tonight, because it's very important, and it's, it's one that uh, a subject that we, we talk about every once in a while. We probably should talk about it more often, uh, and if there's a definitive text about this subject, I think we're looking at it tonight and we'll show you some other scriptures along the way. Uh, So we've spent a lot of time talking about what it means to be in Christ. That's the title of this series, the title of this study in 2 Corinthians. Uh, We have spent a lot of time talking about how Being in Christ changes us; it transforms us; it makes us different from the inside out. Uh, We've mostly talked about that from the angle of what it means and what it does for us practically. How being in Christ makes us more generous, for instance. We did a whole message on that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, We talked about last week how being in Christ makes our attitudes different. Uh, We looked at the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, "This is what it means and what it looks like to be a Christian." That your attitudes are different, your attitudes attributes are different, as in the things that define you and the things that drive you. Tonight, though, the conversation is going to shift to be more personal, as in what our own minds are like as Christians, and how we see ourselves, and how we judge ourselves, and how we See others and how we judge others and how we uh, are perceived by others. So it's it's more of a mental conversation this evening, which I think is a very important one that we need to have. Um, we have the absolute best teacher for this subject, the Apostle Paul. Uh, but I want to talk about human nature a little bit, and some of this will be uh, refresh. Will be stuff that we've talked about recently on Sunday evening. So a lot of you you're already on top of this. It'll just be a little bit of a refresher. Um, human nature is a curious and odd thing. Uh, And and we've recently learned or relearned about it or learned about it again in our Genesis study talking about the fall. Now, just to to remind uh, everybody, uh, there's a few, few important things that we need to know that we need to be mindful of when it comes to our fallen nature. When Adam and Eve rejected a life of glorifying God, when Adam and Eve uh, rejected a life of resting in God, which would have been a perfect paradise, a perfect t- way to live and, and lifestyle to, to, to enjoy, when they rejected a life of glorifying God and they chose to rebel and seek their own glory, they brought on themselves a curse, whereas they would live forever restlessly chasing their own glory. When they turned away from God, when they emptied themselves of the the fulfillment and of the completion that they found and they had in God, when they turned away from God, they emptied themselves of that purpose, of that fulfillment, of that satisfaction, and they brought on themselves and the rest of us by by, by nature, by virtue of, of our connection, they brought on the human race, this curse of restlessly chasing our own glory, trying to make something of ourselves, make a name for ourselves, so that we don't fade away. This mentality that that we have to uh, fend for ourselves and fight for ourselves and make something for of ourselves in order to be uh, to to have anything to to show for this life. And, and the emphasis on restless is there because we will never ever be truly satisfied with what we accomplish, no matter how much we obtain or how renowned we become. Yet our nature still strives for it and, 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 and is hungry for it. Feels incomplete without it. This is kind of what Genesis 3 tells us. So when the woman this woman saw the tree was good for food, as in it made her feel as if uh, feel, her flesh thought it would be fulfilling and, and feeling when it was a delight to her eyes, as in she looked at it and it looked good and she thought it would make her feel good. When the, She saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, as in to fill her with pride and, 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 and accomplishment. She took of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her. So, what was her goal? She saw the tree, and, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she thought to herself, and, and, and Adam thought to himself, Hey, this food's going to be good for our bellies. It looks good, so that means it's probably going to make us look good and make us feel good and make us, you know, have some good thing said about us. It's going to make us wise and make us renowned, and and it's going to make us a somebody. Instead of resting in God to give us what's good, instead of resting in God to make us good, instead of leaning on God and glorifying God, we are going to look out for ourselves. And what was the result? Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So she, they looked upon this, this fruit and they thought, this is going to make us somebody. We don't need God to, be, to, to fulfill us. We don't need God to uh, satisfy us. We don't need to lean on God, rely on God, depend on God for those things. We want it for ourselves, in and of ourselves. And as soon as they took of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, what was the result? The exact opposite. They were empty and they were full of shame and they felt that nakedness. So this is the human experience in a nutshell. We chase all these things in order to exalt ourselves, yet we remain naked and ashamed, empty and unfulfilled. That is the plight of our species. That is the the rat race that we are in every single day. We try so much to make much of ourselves, yet all we ever get is more and more shame, unfulfillment. We are emptied. We are naked. King Solomon wrote a book about the human experience. And he at first thought this was just, there was no hope for us. He thought this was just, you know, God had cursed us and we were just stuck in this, in this rut. Uh, Solomon wrote about this. And of course, later on in life, he realized that God had made a way out of this rut. But originally, he thought, well, this is just, this is really kind of a, a, an awful way to have to live. But he, you know, he was in a really depressed state. Listen to how Solomon describes the human experience. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which, which he tolls under the sun? Uh, answer, nothing, just more and more toil, more and more vanity, more and more emptiness and nakedness and shame. He says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is never satisfied, nor is the ear filled with hearing. So as then we, we, we try and we try and we, we chase after and we chase after, but we're, just, we're never satisfied, we're never fulfilled. And Solomon summarizes it. This is how he initially viewed life. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. Now, he'll realize later that God didn't intend on this to be the way. But at this point in his life, he's thinking, well, this is just this is really a bummer that God has made this our, our lot in life. Now, we know that God didn't will that or intend that, but, but what his 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 proclam, his, his, his decision or his description of life is true. It's an unhappy business. It's a miserable existence. He says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, it's trithing, or chasing after the wind. You ever try to chase the wind, you'll never catch it, right? You'll never catch it. It'll catch up to you. It'll go around the world a couple times before you'll ever get get a, uh, an opportunity to catch it. This is what life is like if we are trying to exalt ourselves and find ourselves and, 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 and make something of ourselves and for ourselves, such is the result of allowing human nature to take, it, take us to its natural destination. John would summarize it like this. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father. God never intended this. God doesn't want anybody to be stuck in this way of life and to be trapped in this existence. But, but that, that, that is not God's will. But this is the world, and this is the world that we live in unless we accept the way that God has made uh, the way of escape to God is made. So we all know this, none of, none of this is new to any of us, but here's what is true about all of us, even if we might first deny it. Even as Christians who've been saved from this way of life, we all know and agree this world cannot satisfy us. Our flesh will never achieve a status that is enough for us. Yet we more often than not still allow the metrics of the world and the standards of the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, the lust of this world, the pride of, the, of this life, we still allow those worldly standards to lord over us and have power over us and make us question whether or not we have found enough in the Lord. We know it's not going to give us happiness. We know it's not going to get us to where we need to go. Yet, even as Christians, we still look over our shoulder, don't we? All of this, uh, all, this, is, this, this is where the concept of being in Christ has such revelatory potential for our lives. It can free us and it can save us from so much grief and so much restlessness. If we truly, I mean, if we truly see ourselves in Christ alone, if we define ourselves by our place in him, we should no longer, I I know this is ideally speaking, and I know this is, you know, it's easier said than done, but if we truly see ourselves in Christ and we define ourselves in him, we should no longer be phased or affected by all the different things of this world that attempt to enslave us and spellbound us. So tonight's message isn't about what being in Christ will cause us to be able to do. It's about what being in Christ can cause us to be able to feel. It's about the mentality and the mindset that we should have as a Christian, as him. There is a peace and there is a rest available to every Christian. If we cling to him as our Savior, if we cling to Christ alone as the one who defines us and empowers us, So many of us, and and me included, so many of us, we think we do this. We think that we're clinging to Jesus, yet we aren't empowered and we aren't at peace and we aren't resting because there are so many gaps in our hearts. The danger of this is that we lose out on the true benefits and blessings of being a Christian. We're vulnerable and unsettled in ways that God can save us from. So I want to ask you a few questions not to poke or prod or make you, feel, you know, make you feel worse than maybe you already do, but, but, but just to kind of get you to, to, to maybe be aware of the vulnerabilities and the gaps in your heart and the ways that you might not be taking full advantage of what it means to be in Christ and the ways that your mind may be open to restlessness and this unsettled lack of peace. And, and maybe this will confirm why, you, you don't have peace and you don't have rest, even though you have faith in Christ. Do you, allow, do you allow other people to affect your joy, your peace, and sense of worth? Before you say, yeah, I do, but, but I don't want that to happen. Before you begin to make excuses as to why that is so, I just want you to answer that question with a simple yes or no. Do you allow other people... To affect your joy? Of course you do, right? And maybe, you know, if, if, you, if you've risen above this, God bless you. But I think you know what this, tem- what this weakness is like and what this temptation is like. Do you allow other people to affect your peace? I mean, this is an open-ended question, but it needs to be open-ended because I want to make sure that we understand how vulnerable our hearts can be. Do you allow other people to affect your sense of worth? Unfortunately, a lot of people make it their life's goal to make us feel less than, right? And that's no excuse for them, but that happens, doesn't it? Of course, people make us affect our joy, affect our peace, affect our sense of worth. Do you allow, a little different question there, do you allow your successes or your losses to define you? As in, do you live by your wins and do you die by your losses? As in, do you kind of ride from high to high, as in you're only really feeling good when you're winning, but when you're losing, you're feeling bad? Do you know what that's like? Do you know what life is like going from riding those waves? Some of us, we're all too familiar with that, aren't we? And I'm not saying that you're not a Christian, I'm just saying that you're a Christian who also lives by the wins of this world and dies by the losses of this world and that's not a stable lifestyle to, to live, is it? It's not an enjoyable lifestyle, is it? Do you take it personal when other people misunderstand you? Yeah, obviously. Are you personally invested in what other people think of you? We all are, aren't we? A few more questions. Do you thrive... Do you thrive off things that make you feel better about yourself? As in, are you really only ever at your best when you feel good about yourself? And when you feel bad about yourself, and there may be a lot of reasons you feel bad about yourself. It might not be something you did or you didn't do. It might be someone else's fault entirely. But do you really only enjoy life when you feel good about who you see in the mirror? Do you ever compare yourself to other people? Maybe you compare yourself to other people based on their families, their successes, their, 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 own, their looks. I don't know. We could go all night with this. Do you ever compare yourself to others? And do you ever feel better about yourself based on what you see in others or feel worse about yourself based on what you see in others? I know there's a, there, some of those questions are connected. Some of them are completely different from each other. But all of these things are instincts of our old, fallen nature. You, apart from your faith, you, apart from Jesus, are completely at the mercy of what other people do. Your joy, your peace, your sense of worth, you, apart from Jesus, you only are, are, are as happy as the wins you have and you're, you're completely devastated by the losses that you have. You, apart from Jesus, only feel good about yourself, right, when circumstances are, are, are you know, contributing to that. You, apart from Jesus, of course you compare yourself because you're always trying to find something to feel good about and, and something to, to, to build yourself up because of. All of these things, if they are true about us as believers, they run the risk of crippling and stunting our faith, walk with God and, and, and actually really crumbling our walk with God. Because only in Christ do we find true justification. Justification. Only in Christ do we find a foundation that can withstand and hold us up. Big word in Christian theology is justification. That's a courtroom word. That's a legal word that speaks of our confidence before the judge this, this life will make us feel like we have any number of judges. We judge ourselves, others judge us, we judge our quality of life and our, our situation in life based on all sorts of scenarios. This life and this world will make you feel like you've got so many things that judge you or, or, or control your destiny. That's what it means to be judged. It means to be said, hey, this is where you're going or that's where you're going. It's, your destiny is based on the judgment that is over you. You may bring it upon yourself, You may other, someone else might bring it upon you, Or you might just observe the world and you might make a judgment based on what you see and how you feel. The point of it is, this life will make us feel like we've got dozens of judges at any point in any period of time. But Jesus says to us, you've got one judge. And often we think about God being the judge as this scary thing, which it's true if we're not, you know, don't trust in him. It is a fearful thing to stand in front of the living God without having faith in him. But also, I I think that there's comfort in knowing that we have one judge. Because a lot of people like to make you think that they're your judge. A lot of worldly situations will make you think that you're at the mercy of what they do and what they bring you and how they play out. But Jesus says, listen y'all, there's only one judge and he's the one you need to worry about being justified in front of. And there is a peace that comes upon us when we begin to disregard every other potential judge because they are not on God's level. We cannot justify ourselves before God. Nothing in this world can justify us before him. Only in Christ do we find true justification. Romans 3, 23 famously says, there is no distinction, there is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So listen, this world's a broken mess. This world's fallen apart. Nothing can give you justification. Nothing can make your heart feel at peace except for knowing Jesus. No other scenario And if you're a Christian, you shouldn't need any other scenario to make you feel at peace. And if you are leaning on anything else but Jesus, you're taking away from that peace. Romans 5, 1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But only do we have peace when we are justified and leaning on Christ alone. We are also tempted to leave the place that we have in Christ, the peace we find in Jesus. We can only find it in Christ alone. All other ground is shaky. All other ground is sinking sand. But but aren't we all tempted to leave the peace of Jesus because we think we need a little bit of something else? We come to church and we sing in Christ alone, but then tomorrow we wrap our hopes around our net worth, someone's opinion of us, how we look, what we've accomplished. Don't you see the trap in that? Don't you see how all of us are constantly being tempted down these dead ends? And that's why I wanted to talk about this tonight. Because the Apostle Paul has some powerful words for us about what it means to remain steadfast in Christ about refusing to shift our hope or transfer our trust to any other support. Have you ever looked at a piece of furniture and thought, I don't think that thing can hold me up? Not because you're you're heavy or anything, but because the furniture doesn't look like it's got any made that well or doesn't it seems better days. Uh, uh, have you ever looked at a platform, scaffolding or a ladder And you've questioned how reliable it is to support you? Y'all have seen this piece of work that we've got in the back, but I'll show it to you just uh, um, to remind you. I hope nobody ever sees this in the closet and thinks, that can hold me up. I don't think you need me to get on it to demonstrate that it isn't anything you need to climb it can't support you. It looks like a ladder, and it technically is a ladder, but it can't hold anybody. That is a picture of every possible thing you could lean yourself on or put your weight on that's not Jesus. You hear me? In order to find justification and feel good about yourself, statuses of this world, circumstances of this world... The Apostle Paul is going to tell us that you are costing yourself, you are putting yourself at risk to leave Jesus, to climb something like that. Now, the Apostle Paul is dealing with these critics that he, that pe- that, that, that he refers to as, and that they refer to themselves as super apostles. They believe they're outranking Paul in miracles. They're not suffering like he's suffering. They have greater spiritual gifts. They're wealthy. They've accomplished great things in this world. Uh, oddly enough, we don't know a single name of one of these super apostles, which might prove the point. Eh? I, I want to read through a few verses where Paul stoically and calmly refused their criticism. He asserts his confidence in Christ and affirms that he isn't worried about the accusations brought against him or the shame being cast on him. Now you may hear some of these verses and you you may think, well, where's the punchline? Because they might not sound as powerful as other verses you've memorized. But the reason why they might not sound as flashy is because of the grace and the confidence that Paul responds to his critics with. Two verses I want to read. Chapter 10, verse 7 and 8, and I'm going to make our first major point, first of two, that we, I hope and pray, we can get a hold of tonight. Chapter 10, verse 7 says, Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, emphasis on in himself, let him again consider that this in himself, that just as he is in Christ even so we are Christ. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, as in I'm not going to brag about who I am to beat you down or knock you down, I shall not be ashamed, as in I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take a foolish approach and do to you what y'all have done to us, is what Paul is saying. Paul refuses, listen to this, he refused to be concerned about how successful he appears. These other people are saying, oh, look at us. Oh, look at how great we are compared to Paul. I mean, we're, we're super apostles. They're saying, we are truly Christians. Look at him. He can't possibly be one of Jesus's. Paul says, do you think that you only have Christ because of what you've done? Do you think that it all contributes to the the gospel? Of course not. That if you say you have Christ, I have him just the same because it's not based on what we do. And my rest is not found in what I've contributed. My contributions are nothing. So here's what Paul tells you and me. This is so big. Refuse to be concerned with how successful we appear. Trust in God's approval alone and be at peace with the work he has given us to do. So we've got to make a decision. Refuse, and this is so hard. Refuse to be concerned with how successful we appear. Trust in God's approval alone and be at peace with the work he's given you to do. And don't be so concerned about what he's given someone else to do. If we could just accept this, we are also concerned about appearances, aren't we? Whether it's our own minds or uh, and it's our own, in our own minds or it's in others. And I get it. A lot of people make us feel bad. A lot of people intimidate us and judge us because they, you know, fl- flash and, and say, hey, look at me compared to you. On top of our flesh desires to have more and be more. But we've got to double and triple down on this. If someone wants to flaunt their money, their success, their giftedness as proof that they are somehow more in Christ, more blessed than us, let them go ahead and do it. And all they're doing is hurting themselves and getting farther away from God. But don't go with them down that road. I want you to think about some of these instances in the Bible where God turns this on its head and I'll give you the reference, and we won't turn to them and read them because I, I, it'll take too much time. But I want to give you the, the scriptures so you can read them on your own time. Most famously, you all know the story of 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse number 7 through 11. Maybe write that down and read that later. But that story is when Samuel goes to Jerusalem, goes to Bethlehem, to find the next king of israel and what does samuel go down to bethlehem with his horn full of oil what is on samuel's mind i've got to find the best looking the strongest looking the most accomplished young man in the town and he goes down there and god says samuel i know what you're thinking before you ever get there i gotta tell you something Do not go down there looking for appearance or physical status or physical stature. I'm looking on the hearts. Keep that in mind. Well Samuel doesn't pay attention he goes down there and he meets Jesse and he says hey Jesse you've got some sons I need to meet them and he says hey I've got some great guys you need to meet all my boys and he brings out all the different boys in his family and he brings seven of his uh, of his of his sons and they're all strong and they're all handsome and they're all accomplished in their community and God says I choose none of these Samuel's thinking okay God well, Jesse, God is telling me that there's somebody else, I guess, in the family. And Jesse's like, yeah, but he's just a kid and he's a shepherd boy and he smells and he doesn't want to take a bath because he's always with the sheep and he's never wanting to come in. To, 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 he's never wanting to go to, to do the things his brothers do because he's so focused on those, uh, those, those darn sheep. And Samuel says, that's the one that God has chosen. That's the boy after God's own heart. There's a few episodes in Jesus' ministry where he makes a big deal about things that we never pay attention to. Remember the story? Where Jesus has been has has been invited to a Pharisee's house, and this Pharisee, no doubt, was very wealthy, very famous, very renowned. His name was Simon. And and the way they would have dinners back in the day, they had these uh, patios that were um, that, that wealthy people lived in these big big communities where all the people were kind of in the same neighborhood, you know, much like our wealthy communities in today's world. So everybody in the neighborhood was invited. So they'd be all out on the patio, out you know, around the fountain and around all the the, the things that the rich people would have in their yards and in their courtyards, and and they're all just eating and they're all just you know eating and enjoying each other's company and Jesus and Simon are sitting at this outdoor table and and somehow some way somebody allowed for uh, an uninvited guest to get to the party and the Bible says that there was a a a woman a, a worldly woman a woman who had sinned in great and noticeable ways who had made her way into the party And she comes to Jesus and clearly she doesn't look like someone that should be in that scene and she's uh, clearly not on the level of that crowd. But nobody says anything about her because everybody's anxious to see how Jesus responds to her because they're trying to set him up. And hopefully he will condemn her and say, get out of our presence because you're not good enough to be here. And, you, you know, we can read between the lines and, and probably this woman was a prostitute or this woman was, was of a pretty, uh, pretty unbecoming lifestyle. And she comes to Jesus and she has a, a, an alabaster uh, jar of, of oil and she pours it on his feet and she begins to wash his feet. And she's, the Bible says she's crying, she's weeping because she's in the presence of Jesus. And Simon thinks to himself, what kind of man must this be that would allow this woman and Jesus reading his heart says, Simon, I guess you have a problem with this. Huh? And you know what Jesus does at the end of that story that he tells? He says, Simon, this woman is justified in the presence of God, unlike you. Because this woman is trusting in me alone. You're trusting in a few extra things, aren't you? There's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. By worldly standards, Lazarus is hopeless. He's begging for crumbs. The rich man is successful. He's obviously very wealthy. But Jesus says this, the story goes that both of them die, and the rich man opened his eyes in hell, and Lazarus opened his eyes in heaven, and more importantly, he was in the arms of Abraham, the father of faith. Everybody in the crowd that day would have gasped, How could Lazarus be justified? The rich man, he's the saved one, he's the successful one, he's the renowned one, and Jesus says, no, no, no. That's not how it works. There's the story of the widow who brought all that she had, which was just a few coins, and put them in the offering plate. Meanwhile, the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders, they're putting in hundreds and hundreds and thousands of dollars, but yet they've kept a lot more back. But this woman put in everything that she had, and Jesus says which one of you think which one of them do you think is justified before God Now that woman didn't walk away and become rich all of a sudden she stayed poor but she was rich where it counted The point is we need to stop giving credence to this world and how it judges people as God's people we need to quit bringing those lies over to how we see the world and most of all how we judge the world because what matters God's approval. And are we at peace with the work he's given us to do? Lazarus, the, the widow, David, the sinful woman, what, was, what justified them? They trusted in God alone. Nothing in their hands did they bring. Simply to God, to Jesus, did they cling. Now look down at verse number 12. And 13, listen to how Paul gives us the next major, major point. For we dare not classify ourselves or, or, or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise, are not doing a good thing. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God has appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you, and he's referring to all of us. Down in verse 17, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord, but not he who commends himself, but he but not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Here's the second final major point. Paul refuses to boast about what he's done as if that makes him great. He refuses to say, hey, this is what I've done. Let's talk about what you've done. He says, I'm not going to compare myself based on my standards, my expectations, my accomplishments. I'm acknowledging that all I'm trying to do in this life is be faithful and glorify God. How dare we Turn away from what, the peace that God gives us and, and try to start defending and justifying ourselves. Refuse to boast and lean on what we've accomplished. Our aim is simply to be faithful and serve our purpose for God's glory. Far too often we get way too worried about the work God is or isn't doing in someone else's life. We compare ourselves with them. Don't you see that's the devil's efforts to remove you from Christ and shift your justification back towards yourself? The devil loves for you to take your eyes off of what God has called you to do. He loves for you to look at what you can do and what others are doing because he wants you to take it back into your hands. This happens to me every Sunday. I am tempted to judge myself based on how well I preach Based on how many people respond to what I preach, it doesn't help that a lot of preachers are always being judged and sized up by the some that hear them, but that is no excuse. As a preacher, I am tempted to judge myself and justify myself based on how good I have, how well I've preached, and how many people respond. But you know what I have to remember every single Sunday because otherwise I'm completely deflated, completely destroyed. God doesn't love me anymore when people respond and when I feel like I've done a good job. And he doesn't love me any less when I've made a mess of things. Do you know the same thing's true for you? That God, God's love does not waver based on your performance. For some of you, this is so life-changing. God's love for you does not waver based on how well you've done or how bad you've done. Because what does it mean to be justified by Jesus? It means that you are totally justified by Jesus, not what you've done or what you haven't done. So many people become full of themselves because of their successes. Others become deflated because of their struggles. We will become full of ourselves or completely deflated, but we can be secure in Christ, full of him and his life, and give all the glory to him. That's the better option. There's a reason why the Bible says pride goes before the fall, because when we make this life about us, success or not, we all fall down, don't we? Why not just rest in Jesus? And listen, if God gives you a big moment, if God gives you a big stage, give all the glory to Him. Because if you keep it to yourself, it will just go to waste. This happens so often in ministry, even though it can happen in any field. Listen to how Paul sizes up these super apostles over in verses 12 through 15. Chapter 11. But what I do, I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in these things, of which they boast. So Paul says, I'm not going to do what they do. You shouldn't either. He says, here's the thing you need to know about these people that do that. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about people that make you think that God is, that, you're, that you are judged by what you bring to the table, and you should feel good or feel bad based on what you have done. That is not the way of the gospel. Every once in a while, I get around a lot of preachers at conferences or meetings, and I don't recommend ever being around a lot of preachers. But um, 99% of the guys, they're great. They love Jesus. They want to be used for him and his glory. But every once in a while, somebody gets up, and they let you know really quickly how lucky you are to be in their presence. They'll let you know really quickly how smart they are and how much they know and how much they've done, and they want you to be impressed by them. There's a lot of people in this world that let you know how wealthy they are. I, years ago, I watched a man grab another man's hand and let him know how rich he was and how much he's done and how many things he's accomplished and wanting to make the man, other man feel lucky to be in his presence. Uh, meanwhile, the man that was, uh, the other, the man that was quiet, he, he was more successful and wealthy than you could imagine. He just didn't talk about it. Uh, uh, this happens in a lot of fields in life. People feel like they've got to stick their chest out. Because they're not resting on Jesus, I want to conclude by reading through the remainder of this chapter, and I want you to listen to how Paul puts these people in their place. He says in verses sixteen through twenty-one, he, he says to them, "Listen, y'all, I'm going to take a moment to make a fool of myself," and he's being kind of self—he's kind of being uh, tongue-in-cheek. He says, "Yeah, y'all want to boast? I'll boast." Y'all make a fool of yourself, I'll make a fool of myself. So just give me this one moment to make a fool of myself, as in to brag about me for a minute. But listen, through, listen to verse 22 through 33 and listen to what Paul brags about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. And listen to what Paul boasts about. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths or in peril of death. Often from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own country, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils of the wilderness, in perils of the sea, in perils among false brethren. If you get the picture, Paul has been criticized that he can't be a man of God because he suffers too much. He has too much trouble. And Paul says, y'all want to talk about trouble? I'll tell you all about my troubles. And weariness and toil and sleeplessness and hunger and thirst and fastings often and cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for the church... Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble? And I do not burn with indignation. If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God of the Father of our our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under Artaeus, the king, was guarding the city of Damascus with garrisons, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and barely escaped. From his hands. You see what Paul's doing here? He's saying, Y'all, from, my, from a distance, my life looked like a failure. If you didn't know me, I looked like the biggest failure ever. Poor, persecuted, forsaken. Yet God used this man to win more people to Jesus than we'll ever know. The reason why we know who Paul is and we don't know a single one of these super apostles' names should tell us all we need to know, right? The people who are famous now, one day they will never be remembered. The people you've never heard of today, they may be the ones sitting on thrones in eternity, Paul is eternally rewarded and remembered because he lived his earthly life for God's glory. He found himself in Christ alone. It may have cost him everything else, but he said it was worth it. Now, I'm not saying it's going to cost you everything. Here's what I'm saying. Paul wasn't concerned about those things. And maybe you shouldn't be either. Maybe all we should be concerned about is not what they think, And what the world judges us and measures us by, maybe all we should be worried about is being in Christ and bringing to Him what He's called us and requires of us to bring. Paul was focused on the grand prize, not the temporary consolations. We would be so much better off if we did the same. Don't you agree? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the reminder of what it means to be justified by faith alone. To be justified by Christ alone. Lord, would you free us from all the anxiety and all the pressure and all the stress that comes from living by this world's standards and being uh, judging ourselves by this world centers, would you help us to rest and find peace in Christ? May it be like the old hymn Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Lord, we pray you'd help us to remain on that solid rock, in Jesus' name, amen.